Peace, peace, and welcome back to another installment of Click on Monday Morning. I have uh, pretty much the most accomplished executive director in the history of nonprofits on today's podcast. <laughs> this young brother is uh, not only um, doing great things with the Hidden Genius Project, he also has a whole other career before that as a professional academic um, he has a great story, a great upbringing, and he's doing fantastic work, ushering an entire generation of uh, black men into the tech field. Mister or Doctor, excuse me, Brandon Nicholson was Gucci. Good morning. <laughs> if I'm the uh, most accomplished executive director in the space, and either something seriously wrong with the space, or we got to call the rest of the space something else. But I'm <laughs> glad to be here. And, uh, you know, I'm uh, a reader. Uh, sometimes, I, I, you know what, I read more than I listen. I read the newsletter just about every week. And then the podcast, I kind of listen to based on uh, who's on there, you know, because uh, I know you had Alec on and, and some folks. But, uh, no, I'm just glad I finally made it, you know. And it was <laughs> Monday morning, you know, I'm ready to give it a shot, see, see, if, I, see if I can make it happen. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Tell us about Hidden Genius Project. What is Hidden Genius Project? Hey, look, Hidden Genius Project. Uh, our mission is to train and mentor black male youth in technology creation, entrepreneurship, and leadership skills to transform their lives and communities. And uh, we were founded in 2012 by, you know, some buddies of mine. The two principal founders were a couple of my good buddies from uh, the Ron Brown Scholar Program. And I always mention that just because we've, we've really based what we've built off the platform that the Ron Brown Scholar Program built with the idea that, you know, you're a scholar for life. So, you know, we've built an intensive program for black male youth in high school. It's a, you know, cohort-based program that's our core component. And it's really about being a genius for life and trying to support these young people and build a network for them. Um, and, and Ron Brown's whole, you know, drive was lifelong network for social change. You know, they gave us a lot of money, $40,000 unrestricted, you know, to put towards our higher education. But that was really to incentivize us and, and uh, entice us to then form networks, form friendship, form bonds, and take on ideas that can really uh, support our community. So I always mention that because this is not growth of that. You know, had it not been for, you know, from the class of 2000, Jason Young and myself, 2001, and Ty Moore, 2002, you know, but just being able to connect from the Ron Brown Scholar Program, you know, in 2012 in Oakland when Jason and Ty moved out to Oakland uh, to build their own for-profit company and said, look, man, we want to pay it forward. We want to do something you know, different. We want to do something meaningful. We want to engage young people, even as we're building our own for-profit startup. We want to basically do this non-profit startup at the same time because we don't want to wait on somebody else to do it. And you know, I connected with them just because they knew I was from Oakland, I had a background in education and education policy. <clears throat> they just wanted to see what I thought. And it was just a great opportunity, uh, I thought, for our young people. And so I just wanted to support however I could. And that's 2012. We were volunteer driven for the next two and a half years. You know, so I didn't come on as staff, as the first staff person to the end of 2014. And, uh, you know, basically, in short, our program is really meant to empower young people, help our young people, especially our black male youth, you know, achieve their dreams, realize their greatest potential. A lot of people associated with tech because we do uh, rigorous training and technology development, you know, front end, back end, full stack, software development, um, business as well, entrepreneurship. 
and leadership. Um, and, you know, the leadership pieces, I think, really centered on having, you know, a sense of identity. So I do a lot of work around identity development, you know, individually and collectively, and then spend a lot of time talking about community and social justice as well. And, uh, you know, that core program is a 15-month program. Uh, now it's but one of the number, you know, several verticals we have. Uh, we started off with just that program, just volunteers driving it, all the funds out of pocket, our first ever our cohort in 2012 was five young people. Um, and now, you know, we've got five cohorts spanning from Oakland to Richmond and Los Angeles. And then a number of other programs we did all summer and that we'll be doing, you know, all year. I think even in this virtual context. So really excited about that. And uh, yeah, so that means that, you know, having served five young people 2012, when we served those five cohorts this summer, that was about 120. But, um, you know, over the course of the year, we'll serve over 1,000, if not 2,000. Last year, we served over 2,200 young people through all our programming. And we're really excited about that. That's beautiful. And it's, it's, I know it's, it's primarily high school students. Is yeah. that still the case? And yeah, now, especially with the, the cohort program. You know, uh, the other programming we do tends to reach high school, middle school. But now, honestly, we have programs that reaches, you know, young as five years old and as old as, you know, 80. Uh, and, and what I'll say is it's really been on the shoulders of our alumni from that intensive program because we've begun to train them as youth educators for the last, you know, four years, maybe five years and, um, you know, have them actually help facilitate programming uh, in the community. And so that's how we can reach a far uh, broader group. And we're reaching, you know, young people, period, across racial and ethnic backgrounds, Cross gender identity, et cetera. Nice, nice. Yeah, I want to get into that. I, I want to dive deeper into the program. I do yeah. want to spend some time uh, on you, on, on your upbringing, and how you think about the work. One of yeah. the reasons I was, I was, you know, I was making all those compliments and uh, bigging up your success is because seeing you and Hidden Genius gain notoriety over the years, I, I had a interesting perspective on because I was doing it alongside you. Like when I was CEO of Mission Bit, I kind of started a Mission Bit a, a little around the time you went on it as full time at uh, Hidden Genius and and the, the grind. And I was talking to Alec a little bit about this, like the grind to raise money is yeah. like, is, is real. And then, you know, so I'm, I'm trying to get to the next month and then it's like, oh, Hidden Genius. <laughs> Google Impact Grant. Oh, Hidden Genius, New York Times article. <laughs> and then I was like, dang, like, what is Brandon doing? You know, so so it was beautiful to see that. And it was beautiful to see an organization like yours get elevated. And I don't want people to think that that happened because like that was just like bestowed upon you, like you wasn't grinding, you know. So um so congratulations on the success of Hidden Genius Project. And for there are a lot of people, there are now there are a lot of nonprofits in this area also, like a ton of yeah. them. Can yeah, you, I've heard that. <laughs> <laughs> can you talk a little bit about just like um how you think about growing the program, what it's like for you to run it? Like what is what are some lessons that you learned? Yeah, and for me, you know, I definitely did not want to be, you know, a nonprofit executive director. Um, what were you doing before? I was working in the evaluation space. So I was paid to figure out if nonprofits were actually doing what they were supposed to do. If they were effective running, you know, randomized control trial or random assignment studies as they're otherwise known. Um, doing a lot of work with foundations, government entities, you know, anybody giving out some money, they need to figure out if it was working. That was me. Um, it was really fun. Um, 
I tended to have the most fun when I was actually kind of doing the collaborative work and sometimes even like the technical assistance and training and capacity building. So that was kind of like one of the first indicators that I should try it on. You know, my wife kept saying, look, you have all these skills and you're only getting to use with so many of them. But to be a director meant, yeah, you had to go into the grind. You had to raise, you know, money. You had to um, just kind of deal with the everyday, you know. Um, and even, you know, the nonprofit doesn't mean non-revenue. Um, it's, it doesn't mean, you know, non-finishing in the black, right? It, mm-hmm. You have obviously, you know, nine-figure nonprofits, you know, that are a really big deal, you know, here and, and have been around for generations. Some of them actually are quite new even, right, by by comparison. but I think for me, it was really just the calling of this particular work and trusting having those relationships. Uh, I mentioned Jason and Ty in the Brown Brown Scholar Program. And, you know, we have kind of five core founders, Jason, Ty, Kilimanjaro Robs, Isaac Hayes, and uh, Kirk Collins, and then even Isaac's wife, Razami uh, Hayes, who's just fantastic, great contributor, and, and so many other folks who contributed to our work. And so a big part of how we got to be here today, how I got to be here, was just, you know, believing in this mission and believing in the work that these other, you know, volunteers were laying down and recognizing we had the opportunity to build an infrastructure around it and recognizing, yeah, there is a nonprofit industrial complex um, for sure, but I was going to try my best to run it like a business uh, try my best to learn from people doing it really well. Alec Lee being, you know, one of the folks at the Platinum Standard of this work. Um, you know, Regina Jackson, someone else I put way up there at East Oakland Youth Development Center, um, where, you know, I just try and pay a lot of attention to what they do um, and, and take a lot of notes. And I take a lot of notes from a lot of folks, including folks running private businesses. And, and for me, you know, you talk about the grind and the startup piece. Our first hire was an accountant, you know, and and it's not lost. I mean, just be transparent. I know that's what you're aiming for on this show. Uh, and, and you know, I'm a black man uh, identifying as such for those who may or may not know. And I'm a black man trying to run a business, run an organization that's trying to pull in it, sometimes ask for or earn or whatever it is. Uh, you know, a lot of money, um, hopefully, will hopefully be a lot of money someday. And like, obviously, the thing that you can't do as a black man running an organization, ask for a lot of money is mess up the church's money, as they say, right? So accountant, that was the first thing. Let's run it like a business. Let's be fiscally sound. Let's be on point with that. Even though, you know, everything we do is going to center on the mission, center on our young people. Let's, you know, make sure we're on point um, and that uh, we keep the church's money together. One-on-one advice. Someone wants to start a nonprofit. Someone wants to like, uh, you know, get going. What's your, what's your like best few pieces of advice for that person? Yeah, I think, you know, there's kind of a, the meta advice. So, you know, looking at why, for example, I hired the accountant first, I just recognized it was the area in the space where, you know, I, I was going to have the least energy. I'm actually not scared of it. And I like to think I keep a mean QuickBooks together in partnership with our team. But uh, recognizing that I was getting into this work for the mission. I was getting into this work for the young people. I was getting into this work to be able to innovate, try on new things. So if that's the case, if the last thing I'm thinking about is these receipts, and, you know, these monthly financials, I wanted to hire, uh, you know, a firm and I got a great referral, you know, uh, you know, from just trusted friends and neighbors. But I wanted to hire a firm that lived and breathed this so they could say, listen, here are the systems we're going to put in place. 
and that part is going to be okay. So, you know, there are some people I imagine who become the leader or the founder of a nonprofit who are, say, fiscally inclined or whatever. That's their strength. That makes sure you get the great hire and the big splash addition in the other area, whatever that area might be, right, where your level of expertise is not or where your level of energy is not. Um, because what we're going to want to do, obviously, is spend as much strategic bandwidth and time than in the area that gets us jumping out of bed each day. So I think that was that one-on-one piece was, you know, make sure the money's straight regardless. But if you're the type of person who's already down to keep the money straight in the whole night, and maybe it's community engagement, you know, you need a great person who's just all over the grassroots, or maybe it's just someone uh, who can do, you know, the programmatic pieces. And if you're working, say, with young people, who understands young people extremely well that you love the mission, but you're like, man, I'm just not going to be here in this room with these, you know, young folks, get that person. Right. So make sure you kind of get that balance, right. You want to, you want to balance that, that energy and those strengths really early so that as an individual and a leader, you can focus on the stuff you do particularly well and the stuff that really excites you every day. Yeah. That is, that is a lesson that you learn quick. And some people are kind of stubborn around I've seen in terms of just like other areas of their life or whatever, like know who you are, know who you're not. Yeah. You know, if, if you are this type of person and, and I, and I do this sometimes too. Like I really wish I was more administrative and I'm not, <laughs> you know, like this, this podcast wouldn't happen if it wasn't for David. Right. Cause I, I like to book the discussions. I like to talk to the people, but like if, right. I, if I had to do all the editing, right, it would just live on my computer, you know? So right. like knowing who you are, knowing who you're not is definitely like a def- a great way to, um, just like keep things going and keep and, and continue continuing to build. Let's talk about impact. Yeah, because we talked a lot about we talked a little about the the, the business and the approach. Yeah, um, what what is happening as a result of Hidden Genius Project? Yeah, and you know, it's I think definitely worth noting. You know, you you talk to an executive director. We've been talking, you know, better part of fifteen plus minutes or what have you, and you know, I haven't been digging into all the impact. Um, you know, the first thing I'm talking about is like the accounting and all the other stuff. And and, and the, I think the reason why is because at the end of the day. Well, I asked you. I asked you about it. <laughs> no, no, you. Oh, no, it's not on you. That's on me. I'm saying in terms of, you know, some folks would go straight there. And I think it's important because it's part of how you tell the story. I think for this conversation, the reason why I didn't is just because I think at the end of the day, and you would understand this, you know, we make decisions around the impact we're seeking to achieve. A lot of times then, as we make those decisions, they're being tested or we're having to justify them or sometimes adjust, right? Because we're like applying for a grant, talking to a funder and, you know, it's, it's tricky. You know, it, it can be a bit precarious because sometimes you get caught leaning and looking, as they say, over at like what a funder is doing or ask for what another organization is doing, you know? And it's like, well, you know, I wanted to measure this thing, but man, like, Everybody keeps asking like about your college enrollment or about your, you know, number of, you know, folks on free and reduced price lunch or, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And like at the end of the day, like maybe we exist so folks have a great time. Like, and there's, you know, coming from the evaluation space, I recognize a couple of things. One, the working for foundations, working for funders, government, et cetera, even the most like rigorous studies that people ever commission, most of the time, the people funding and commissioning these studies were not reading the results of the studies we're doing before making their next funding decision. So like there are folks who quote unquote geek out over the stuff that the vast majority do not, not in the conventional sense, right? What they geek out over is the story. 
You know what I'm saying? What's the story you can tell? What's their understanding uh, and their perception of the impact? What's their understanding of the relationship? And you spoke to that too. You know, relationships being so important. And so like impact, you know, for us, it, the big irony for me, like people would say, hey, you're coming from the evaluation space. You're probably going to geek out over the numbers. I'm like, the numbers are fine. But you give me a number, I can make it sound however it needs to. You know what I'm saying? So, like, we have to understand internally what impact we're seeking. You know, for example, doing this intensive work, getting these young people in retention was going to be huge. You know what I'm saying? Our bet was on just the what it means to mentor a young person, especially, a, you know, a young black boy, a young man at this stage of life. Keeping them for that 15 months is the best shot we have at supporting them 15 years out. You know what I'm saying? Like those first 15, right, is like once we make that commit, and, and that doesn't even mean doing all the homework assignments. It doesn't mean making sure they have a 3.8 GPA. You know, it doesn't mean it just literally can we keep them around long enough to recognize that we're there, part of their village, because they're going to gain more clarity, right? As we get older, we get more maturity, more wisdom, and we start getting some more clarity around what we want, how to get there, et cetera. But the gap often becomes resources. So when you look at like our retention, you know, our retention has, you know, stayed upwards of 95 plus percent, somewhere between 95 and 98% in our cohorts, right? Which is really important to us, you know, even if we got to drag you back, we haven't seen you for four days or whatever, we got to call home, if we got to go pick you up, we've had guys, we had to just go get every single day and drop them off because you're like, no, you're going to do this once you make the commitment. If you don't want them to make the commitment, if it's not for you, it's fine. But once you're in, you know, for our intensive emergency program, once you're in, you're in, like it's not, we're not doing all that. If you had all the answers, you know what I'm saying? If you had everything you needed, you wouldn't have come to us in the first place, right? And we certainly wouldn't exist. So that was the first one. And then certainly just looking at something like high school graduation, because just completing, whether it's for the learning experience, the educational attainment, whether it's for the benchmark of completing something, whether it's for the signaling effect of what completing high school means over all else, it's something we got to get done. And what else do you have to do? Anything you're doing, even at the highest level, you could be in some of our most talented entrepreneurs have, you know, emerged as such at 15, 16, 17 years old. But when you're at that age, you got a lot of time, right? Like you really do. So you can be doing a whole lot of stuff and still finish high school. Now, if you're going to be a full-time entrepreneur and we're not going to do college or some other post-secondary training, that's fine. Let's talk about it. Let's build a plan. But we got to get you through high school. So our high school graduation rate has been well north of 95% this whole time. And then you have, say, college enrollment, which hasn't been, you know, the end all be all. It's been a goal or a marker, right, of, you know, folks moving on to the next step. But it's not the only one. And by no means is it the only one that, that matters, right? And so, um, you know, for us, we've been trying to build infrastructure to keep supporting young people to access post-secondary education but also then be able to access whatever opportunities they may need to get to their goals and get to the next step. And that even then our college enrollment, you know, has been north of 95%. So you're talking about now since 2012 for just the intensive immersion program, about 270 odd young men served, right? And so, you know, you apply those percentages to 270 odd young people. And then you have basically another, you know, 6,800 young people who served through all the other programs we've done. You know, ranging in in intensity and, and frequency, and duration, et cetera. But um, you know, we just start there, and honestly, we've got it. Like that's those are the three big ones that are driving us every day. Whether there's someone else wants to hear about, for example, the college admission rate or it's a four year versus two year, we're less concerned with that. 
um, when people ask about well, what about the farm data, free and reduced price meals, um, you know, we want to have a heterogeneous group. We don't means test because as it turns out, um, racism is actually a thing, right? So like, you know, income, like, cause a lot of times we get caught up in this and sometimes it's folks from outside the community. So that might say mean white folks or, or people who are not black, what have you, but sometimes it's folks inside the community not thinking it all the way through. No disrespect. I'm just saying from the standpoint of people say, well, they're going to make it anyway. So if you want to talk about my story, I'm, I got a really peculiar story. I'm at, at worst and, and we always try and figure out kind of even beyond that, but I'm at worst pretty much a fourth generation college student as a black man in America. I got two black identifying parents. I got black identifying blood grandparents, et cetera, et cetera, right? We know there's a lot of history. I'm clearly light-skinned, so we, we know something happened, but what I'm saying is I'm fourth so you generation got the, you, got the, you, got, you got the light-skinned complex too, or you? Well, you, well no, no, I'm saying <laughs> some, clearly, yeah, there, clearly there's some European influence in here somewhere. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very happy to be aware of it. But I say that to say that having been. No, I was saying, talking about the light skin kind of like light skin dudes being sensitive. I was. I was oh no, I got it. Oh, I got it. You know, I just, <laughs> I just right past it. Like, I, I appreciate you. Uh, but no, but no, I, I mentioned that because you know when by the time I'm 14, you know I'm living with my mom. We're on public assistance. My mother is. Um, at that point, you know, she's got a, a, a JD, a legal degree, right? As does my father at that point. But things happen, systemically things happen, other things happen, and here we are, you know, here I am at the grocery store, like using, you know, crumpled up food stamps, you know, to get a snack, right? Like, so you can't tell me that it's not important to build a network to build opportunity. And what got me through that period was absolutely my relationships, the networks, my family, but we, whatever wealth we didn't have monetarily, what my mother, my father, everyone had built was, you know, a certain commitment to um, self-development, self-improvement, and a belief and a connection with our network, you know, with our community. And so we could build from there and we could get better. And so that's what we're trying to do. And so, you know, how do you measure that? Well, technically, if, if you ask the evaluation, I mean, you could do a social network analysis, which is quite expensive if you get any evaluation firm to do it. But at the end of the day, like, no funder really wants to see a social network analysis. I think they just want to understand how we talk about it. And then and can we tell a story around what's happening when our program is really working? I'm glad you, you sort of you started with the story. And I think that's all of that is a great way to, to sum up uh, how to effectively communicate about the vision of, I think, any entity. And I want to I want to dive deeper into Brandon Nicholson, you know, so like uh, uh, the food stamp thing. So I grew up on food stamps. Right. Which is, hey, by the way, I mean, no, like, I know sometimes, like, it's a generational thing, you get older, and it's like back in my day, but straight up, the fact that there's an EBT card now, there's no way you're ever going to convince me that's not exponentially better. (laughs) Right? Because food stamps do not look like money. If If you swipe that EBT card, and I can imagine that young people around this country have gotten particularly adept at, you know, being swift, you know, swift with the wrist, you know, mm-hmm. but when you got to go in the wallet and pick out, you know, four brown ones, right. you know what I'm saying? Right. Like, no mistaking uh-huh. what that is. I could try and fold it in half and pass it. It does not look like, you know, U.S. currency. Mm-hmm. So, like, I just, I just had to throw that out there. It's, it's, uh-huh. It was at a time when your money was, your stamps, I'd say, were quite visible. Uh-huh. Uh, quite prominent. <laughs> yeah, nah, yeah, yeah, yeah. The story I was going to bring up was um, dropping it. I was on the bus on the way to school right. and I dropped it's it on like, the ground. 
Don't and do that. These two, these two kids picked it up and they was like, is this short? Like they weren't talking to me. They were talking to each other. Like, is this yours? Right. And, and it was mine. It was my money right. for the day. And you needed it. You needed it. And, you yeah. claim it. and I didn't, but I didn't claim it though. No, no, you <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, I just like, I'm just like, I was so ashamed of having it that right. I didn't tell them it was mine, you know. So, right. um, so I get it, I get it. The the racism is a real thing. People try to slice and dice, and or they can try to like undermine or criticize whatever, right? It's like, oh, um, Mission Bid has all these kids, and they're like all Asian boys. Right. right. And then it made me be like, well, shit, I'm going to get more Asian boys in the program just to say, right. <laughs> like, who says that, you know, somebody can't participate or like for Hidden Genius? Oh, well, they don't accept Latino boys or, oh, it's so small, like whatever it is. Right. Um, or the, the free and reduced lunch, like you brought up your example, right? Mm-hmm. Free and reduced lunch. Uh, they're going to make it anyway. The task that you're taking on, especially around improving the lives of black males you summed it up perfectly like racism is a real thing so um and i think your focus has been rewarded in the sense that people have rallied around that idea to support your young your young people right like these young people are being rewarded in that way or being supported in that way um you grew up in the bay right in Oakland, town baby, for sure. Yeah. Oakland native, okay, okay. Represent, represent. <laughs> and you know, uh, I'm in first generation, right? My parents moved in, uh, or first full generation. My parents moved in from Chicago. That's where they met. Um, mm-hmm. But wanted to come to a place that was more diverse. It wasn't as segregated. They loved Chicago, but it was a shade too segregated, and they found some work out here. Shade too segregated, and a shade too cold for a shade too long, right? So they had to leave Chicago and come out this way. And my mom had gone to Berkeley. She grew up, you know, in California, the Bay, South, Southern mm-hmm. California as well. So it's like, you know, I love being from here. I love the fact now that I got a son who was born here as well, you know, and then hope to keep that going a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you the only child? Yeah, uh, you know, so I grew up an only child and then, you know, my dad remarried, uh, actually remarried again about seven years ago or something. So I basically, I get almost six-year-old half-brother now. Okay, uh, <laughs> nice. But yeah, I'm supposed to see him this weekend, but uh, uh, yeah, I grew up an only child. Okay. Um, talk a little about the neighborhood, the schools you went to. Man, you know, and I was so fortunate uh, growing up, even when we ended up on food stamps, you know, it's my, my home for most of my life has been somewhere not far from Lake Merritt, mm-hmm. uh, either on one side, you know, north of Mandan uh, through eighth grade until basically ninth grade. And then we had, you know, move out and a lot of things changed. And, and you know, then uh, south of uh, MacArthur, right behind the Catholic Church, but right off Lakeshore, I've never lived a block you know, farther than a block from Lakeshore, um, which I love just uh, because, you know, for as diverse a town as Oakland is, it doesn't get any more diverse than Lake Merritt on the weekend, you know, and that's kind of, I feel like many ways how I grew up, um, but it was so fortunate just to live in a place, you know, that was, you know, quiet and, and peaceful uh, every day. You know, I'm really thankful, especially to my parents, um, you know, one, you know, being born and growing up in Cleveland, Ohio. My mom being born technically in West Virginia, being on our Air Force red moving around. And so they had different experiences. They'd seen different things. They wanted me to see more. And, you know, recognizing again, fourth generation college student, like son of two, 
uh, you know, lawyers were training, lots of books, books in the home. And they didn't want me to be a punk, you know, mm-hmm. so they, they were like, were you going to play baseball in West Oakland? You're going to play baseball and basketball in East Oakland. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to catch the bus. You're going to catch the bus by yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, you can catch the bus by yourself with your birth certificates. You're, you're tall for your age and they're already trying to charge you the adult uh, you know, prices at you know nine and ten years old. So keep the, <laughs> keep that copy of the certificate on yourself. Make sure that uh, the bus drivers know what's up. And so, like for me, the, but the number one thing was even more than about not being a punk was really that they they wanted me to understand that, especially in a place like this, <clears throat> value and wisdom comes from all over. They didn't want me to just think it was coming from the books or just the next door neighbors or just folks who went to this school or did that, that really you get the game from everybody. You know what I'm saying? You can learn from everybody and everybody is precious. So you got to look out for everybody. And that was the biggest gift. So I've always felt comfortable, you know, north, south, you know, well, not south, northeast and west here in Oakland. But um, it was very intentional. They had me go all over. They, you know, wanted me to get in a sticky situation or two just to understand, learn how to be aware, keep my head on the swivel. Um, and that was a really big part of my growing up. So, you know, I could go home to really quiet, you know, confines just off Lakeshore and, and not be worrying about a whole lot, um, you know, in terms of my neighborhood. But just spent a lot of time elsewhere. I went to Magnet Elementary School uh, in Rockridge, pulling from all over the city. I went to Magnet Middle School again in Rockridge, pulling from all over the city and parts, other parts of the East Bay, uh, you know, predominantly uh, students of color. And, you know, I learned from kindergarten through eighth grade. I was in Oakland Unified Schools, learning a ton, going with my parents to school board meetings, going to PTA meetings, you know, thinking about, you know, policy and, and you know, sitting with like coloring books and Game Boys and whatever, like getting in trouble for fidgeting around because you're at the school board meeting for three or four hours, right? You know, wondering when That's we on go a good home, night, three or four hours. I know, when public comments over, you know, so, but, but that's the game, like that's what I learned, so. I was always thinking, how do you make this better? And I ended up going for high school through a program called A Better Chance, you know, going to Marine Academy. ABC kid, huh? That was Terrence. Yeah. Terrence was on the podcast from the AIM High. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Go exactly. ahead, continue. Exactly. <laughs> no, and, and no, that's right. Marine Academy was one of the AIM High sites for, you know, a time, right? Um, in, in San Rafael. And that's where I was going. I was commuting every day, sometimes hour, hour and a half, two hours a day or more depending on how I was getting there. And, uh, you know, I just realized when I got there, it didn't take me but a few hours to realize, well, this is a beautiful place. There's a lot of resources. No one here is more deserving, um, you know, of these resources than anyone back home is deserving of these resources, mm-hmm. number one. And number two, in reality, no one here did anything to get this. You know what I'm saying? People, you know, it is not popular to say, and as you get older, it becomes less popular because now you're talking about college, your job, your career, like where you get to live. But like, bro, this was like determined by the zip code where we were born. You know what I'm saying? Like even for me, like I said, born with lots of books in the house, you know, folks who had education can help me move and wiggle around no matter where I went. So I was like, what if you can't move and wiggle and, and shake and hustle? Like what's your natural birthright with respect to quality access to opportunity and quality access to learning and education. And that's how I got so interested in education and education policy, mm-hmm. you know, going to, you know, and actually the story, you know, that kind of solidified even before I got to Marin Academy, believe it or not, was, you know, I had been weighing, you know, a better chance in a school in that network, an independent school with just going to Oakland Tech, uh, you know, public high school in Oakland Unified School District. Love, you know, that's is the school that I knew so many of my friends were going to be going there, et cetera. I went ahead and put in my paperwork to Oakland Tech, even after I'd already applied to a better chance. 
um, you know, and and uh, one day, probably, you know, the week or week after I put in my paperwork, I'm in like a homeroom class or, you know, I can remember the room I was in. Unfortunately, we have homeroom and English in that classroom. So I, I can't be 100% sure, but I definitely got called out of class. That's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, how many education conversations have you had with guests on your show you know about black boys you're right so i'm an eighth grader i'm a black boy i just got called out of class it tends not to go <laughs> go great for us i'm like what did i do like i'm racking my brain taking the long green mile walk down the hallway you know what i'm saying to the counselor's office trying to figure out like what did i do but like mm-hmm. i mm-hmm. felt like i had a decent day i didn't talk too much i didn't you know so i get into the office and the counselor's there and the vice principal and i'm like oh come on you know like and they're like hey take a seat you know, and that's what they say. So I take a see, I look down and it's the better chance of application on the on the table, right? Mm-hmm. The one I actually had already completed. This is a new one, a blank one, of course. And, you know, they said, hey, we saw your paperwork for tech came in and we were just wondering, you know, have you thought about a better chance? We think you've got a lot of potential um, and maybe, you know, you should consider this. You've got some schools with some great resources. And so I said, oh, man, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, you know, I don't know what I'm doing yet, but I did apply to a better chance and we're waiting to hear back and you know appreciate it but man as i'm walking back now taking the the you know it's a as a, a much faster walk back now that I'm like, <laughs> right but just thinking like it even struck me then at 13 years old like man they said i'm high potential and that they cared about me so they called me out of class in my eighth grade oakland unified school district public school and had me go have this conversation to talk about leaving not just tech but the district altogether right mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. the public school system entirely mm-hmm. and i'm like man like how many people didn't get the call down this hall you know mm-hmm. and like how many people are still high potential and deserve those opportunities so that's when you know kind of the light was starting to go on for me like oh i need to be doing some work on this to try and figure out how to get folks you know more access you know so that you don't have to keep calling everybody out of class all the damn time like in it and i appreciate it it's not that i was ungrateful but um you know, it wasn't a scalable solution as, as we can understand. Yeah. Where'd you go to college? Uh, went to college back east at Princeton University in uh, uh-huh. New Jersey. And uh, man, had you know, quickly learned the meaning of uh, old money, new money. I thought I knew what that meant. I thought it meant, you know, like old food stamp, new food stamp. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I didn't have a real understanding. Marina Cadden was all new money, but Princeton was old money. Princeton was... Is that how you met Buford? Did you meet Jonathan Buford there or somewhere else? Yeah, we're basically roommates, sweetmates. And oh, okay. Shout out to Jonathan Buford. Go continue. That's right. No, <laughs> my guy. Yeah, we lived on the same hall, met the first day of orientation, and, and the rest is history. You know, we just two brothers on the same floor trying to figure out where we we're going to get our hair cut. That was it. That's, mm. you, you know, it's the closest to friends since 2001, just because as a black man, you just wanted to figure out where to get your haircut. And right. that's why the Ingenious Project is this. You're creating that network because think about all the things he and I have been able to do together. Like, what could you do if you build a network just based off some of your shared experiences with all this stuff you had different? He, mm-hmm. he was not the fourth generation, you know, to go to college. He, you know, biracial family, like, you know, born in Brooklyn, raised in Long Island, very different. But yeah, that was that was Princeton. It was like all these different people, different places. But you know, being at Marine Academy, I always kind of get irked. You know, when people talk about just you know, just well, Marine Academy can be a stifling, whatever. I'm like, if you want to be stifled, go back east because they did not pretend to care. Like, if you get to stand up at assembly 
and say how your school was stifling you, which would happen at Marin Academy. Like, bro, like they did not care. Like nobody cared. And I don't mean like they weren't good people. I'm just saying it's old money. So when I say they did not care, I just meant if this is the way it is, that's the way it is. Like we don't talk about it. Now, that didn't mean people didn't have a problem with it. It didn't mean everybody wanted to do it. So like I was like culture shot for a full year. I think the thing that got me back together um, was community service, you know, trying to, it took me about a year, but to really dedicate my whole life to service, mm. Black uh, Student Union, Black Men's Awareness Group, uh, Community House, uh, Community Service Organization within Princeton that was doing all this work in uh, Princeton Township, where all the people serving the university were on the other, literally on the other side of the tracks and the other side of the street, mm. a bunch of Black folks from Princeton, as it turns out, and then Trenton as well. Mm. And that got me, then I started to love it, because I'm like, okay, I can leverage these resources and build networks and be okay. But it took me a second. Where'd you do your PhD? Well, I came home. I, it was it was nice to be at Princeton my sophomore year on April 1st of 2003. Uh, it snowed. And I was like, you know what? <laughs> I love the snow in November. I love the snow in November. Snow in January is great. February, okay. March, we're doing our best. Brev, it's going to snow on April 1st. Uh-huh. That's so I said, you know what? When I get up out of here, I'm going to try and pursue a doctorate degree in education. I'm going to do it in California. You know, if I got to spend four to five years doing it, I'm going to do it someplace where I'm really comfortable. And I'll always love to visit the East Coast and other places, but now I can't live that lifestyle trying to do independent and original research. So I I came back home, um, ended up at UC Berkeley. It was a really close selection between UC Berkeley and UCLA. Um, And I ended up going, you know, Cal, which is crazy because I grew up right down the street. And all I saw was a place where they do the protests, a place where we'd go, you know, uh, I grew up, you know, practicing Buddhists and so many like people practicing were on campus. So we have meetings over there or the place where you go get pizza, a place where you get your tie dye or whatever. I didn't look at it as a campus. So I finally got there as a graduate student. I'd had four years under my belt. I'm like, oh, it's a beautiful campus. It's a beautiful university. And uh, yeah, I loved my time there as well. Yeah, I wanted to get into the Buddhism and talk a little bit about that. We 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 kind of brushed over how tall you are. Like when you when you go somewhere, your office is the tallest person. You're like you're six seven, right? Uh, you know, I'm I'm six, probably somewhere between six nine and, and six ten. If you're actually oh young. my bad, <laughs> no, no, no disrespect. No, no, I didn't mean to take those two inches from you. Know, I worked hard for those two, but I can't do nothing with them now. So it's cool. <laughs> okay, six nine, six ten. Obviously, very accomplished student. Like because uh, you you went to you have multiple degrees. Um, were you balancing other activities alongside school or were you, was school your only focus? All the time. Are you talking about like high school and, and leading into and, it? Well, college, college and... Yeah, everything. I mean, you know, I loved, I played sports. I did, I was, you know, student body president in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, played, you know, three sports the whole nine and and, you know, basketball, you know, while not my first, baseball is my first love, but basketball, mm-hmm. you know, kind of became my first sport over time, mm-hmm. you know, um, although it probably should have been track, uh, as ironically. But, um, yeah, and thinking, you know, even as I got to Princeton, you know, starting to work on walking on and starting to go to practices and stuff and realizing, like, I have all these things I want to do. And even in the Ivy League, you know, Division One sports is a full-time job, you know, and, and there's, you know, n- nobody's there on scholarship per se, but they can go, they can boogie, they can play. And Princeton's won a lot of championships and they, they're not playing around. So they were doing two-a-day workouts, you know, four, five, six, seven hours a day. 
of you know basketball and i'm like man i don't think i could do this and still be great at school especially if i'm thinking about grad school and the whole nine so i, I quit that but you know again you know it, kind of the community service organizations the kind of black student organizations that in undergrad at college um that carried me and so when i got to graduate school i knew especially getting there at 22 you know as a fairly young phd student i knew i just had to find community right away so like black graduate student association i ended up working for like the graduate student government i was a student athlete tutor at cal and, and one of the few black tutors you know there are many uh, multiple years where i was the only black tutor in the athletic study center so the only student athlete tutor that was black and a black man at that so i got assigned you know some of the you know top recruits from football in particular, sometimes basketball and other sports. And um, yeah, you know, so everything kept me, but I kept working. I was a resident assistant or an apartment assistant, as it was called in the graduate housing. So living rent free. So I was holding, you know, easily three, four jobs at a time, graduate student researcher doing policy research with my advisor um, and had a fellowship and was funded. So grad school was like the best time. I was making a lot of money. I was eating for free. I was always busy. And I was able to read and get paid to do it on my own schedule. Buddhism. How did that, how did you get introduced to that? Yeah, I was born into it. You know, my parents, okay. they, they started practicing in Chicago uh, right around the time they met. And, uh, you know, something I was born into, particularly practice a, a school of Buddhism called Nichiren or Nichiren Daishonin Buddhism. And, you know, a part of a lay organization, Soka Gakkai International. Um, and lay organization meaning there's no clergy, so it's just a bunch of folks. So, you know, for as long as I could remember, my mother and father had leadership responsibilities within the organization. We were hosting meetings at our home, you know, sometimes into the wee hours of the night. You know, I you know, was famous as a young child for moving everybody's shoes around, you know, because we'd have 20, 30, 40 people at the house and so mm-hmm. take shoes off. And, mm-hmm. You know, I was a shoe organizer for a long time. You know, so <laughs> it, it was always around me. Um, and even from a young age, you know, we chant. Our The core of our practice is chanting, Nam-myo-ho-renge-kyo. So I was always chanting, but it was actually, I had so many health challenges growing up. Um, and they kind of started to pile up and compound. And eventually my parents were just like, look, man, like, you know, you know, you can make your own choices. And this is, I'm five, six, seven years old when they're talking to me this way, right? But mm-hmm. like, you can make your own choices, but you got a lot going on. Like, we're going to chant for you. We're going to use our Buddhist practice, but you're going to have to do something. Because like this lifestyle you got going is not sustainable. Uh, you you got to find some wins. And so I just started trying to put it to practice, put it to work. And at every stage, you know, any point I've talked to you about something challenging or some hardship, you know, that's been my foundation. That's been my anchor. Um, and I've been able to, you know, overcome and, and create a lot of value from it. So um, it's very much a part of my, you know, daily uh, practice, my daily, you know, my identity. And uh, and I'm really fortunate uh, to have been able to, you know, just have something I could build on this entire time, especially when things get really weird, you know, and obviously we're in some weird times right now. So it's, it's been super helpful. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great segue because I wanted to get into the times. You know, so we're 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 in quarantine. This the time right now is uh, yeah. this is April, April. This is August sixth. You know, we're post the murder of George Floyd. You run an organization that uh, supports black boys, black young men, uh, and a range of other folks yeah. like you, like yeah. you described. Yeah. Um, uh, school's about to start. Talk a little bit about what the response from your organization was, like how you're thinking about uh support 
how yeah. you're thinking about support right now, like for the for the students? Yeah, I mean, and to be honest, the most impactful, the most hard hitting racial injustice that we experienced where, you know, it kind of shocked us to our core, not shocked us that it existed, but just threw us off balance um, over the last five months, right? Was COVID-19 aftermath. Mm -hmm. We've been, we have curricula around police shooting. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> like that's why we didn't release a statement on the same day as Starbucks or Levi's or, you know, the Warriors. Like we, we get that Black Lives Matter. I went back and just, found the first letter I ever wrote, my introductory letters and the executive director that I wrote, you know, I think I probably drafted January 2015. Mm -hmm. The first line is Black Lives Matter, right? You know what I'm saying? Like mm -hmm. at that point we were responding, you know, you're talking about communities that never quite got over Emmett Till, you know, and you know, I had I was talking to one boy, you know, he said, I'm I never got over Christmas addicts. You know what I'm saying? Like just the whole idea of like, you know, sacrificing uh, you know, in this country, the other parts systemically we're seeing and supporting young people who are navigating them all the time. But then, you know, the the like magnifying glass, right, was COVID nineteen, and you're like, oh man, like we got guys in our cohort who still, you know, like you said, it's August sixth right now. It's cook on a Monday morning. You're listening to this. It's August tenth, right? But you're talking about young people who haven't had math since March. 11 you know it, it, right like that's crazy that's winter right like you know in in north america in the northern hemisphere that was winter of 2020 we're now in summer 2020 and fall is now you know kind of closer right than it is far off mm -hmm. and so you're like man like what does it mean that you've got young people going to schools where they just have the resources or like the capacity to teach quality math at the high school level you know for five months now what does that mean? What does it mean that, you know, you've got, you know, communities that are disproportionately subject either to be furloughed or laid off, what have you, or disproportionately subject to have to keep working wherever they were working, you know, and how many of our families say, yeah, I'm going to work, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. During this time, right, and, and going back several months, yeah, I'm going to work, I got to go in, you know what I'm saying? Meaning right. they've got to expose themselves, you know, um, and knowing that it's happening more broadly in our communities, um, you know, Thankfully, you're able to mobilize you know, resources, but how many folks need support, not just with the light bill or with, you know, grocery store, gift cards, what have you, you know, how many folks were depressed, you know, how many folks are dealing with just feelings of, you know, just helplessness, if not hopelessness, right? Um, and, you know, we're trying to wrap our arms around those guys and wrap our heads around that. But what I'll say about our team is our team was not, you know, deterred by any of this, um, you know, we did it by hook or by crook. Sometimes it got weird, you know, because we're going through the trauma as well. You know, say we're like uncertain and, and we have families and we sometimes have, you know, pre-existing conditions. So but everybody's like, I know what we can't do is like not be here for these young people. So we shifted to virtual literally the next day. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like Monday, March 16th. We knew we probably couldn't go in the office. Like schools had just closed. Every school district by that point, by Friday the 13th, it closed. So we were like, we know we're going to be at the house. And when shelter in place went into effect, we're like, okay, that's it. We're virtual. And, and within the next day, we're having our first meetings with the alumni of our program. I mentioned we were training those youth educators. So Tuesday morning, started having our first meetings with alumni saying, hey, we're probably going to need you to work with us from now all the way through summer to help us do things like reduce our class sizes. Um, 
provide more peer mentoring and cascading mentoring support, um, you know, help us think through and test out technologies from a youth lens uh, to see if this can actually work because we want to keep doing this. And, and that was our commitment. And at first it was our commitment to our immersion cohort that was meeting during the school year and after school, doing that once a week and on some Saturdays. Um, and then it was our commitment to our immersion students who were in summer. Then, you know, our partners were saying, well, hey, we're thinking about doing some virtual components. You know, you normally would be here at our youth center after school every Tuesday and Thursday. Would mm -hmm. you still teach, but, you know, on Zoom? Or, hey, we haven't worked together before, but, you know, the partner we usually work with it doesn't have the capacity to do any of this. Can you do it? And it's like, okay, and we did it. And, and it was really, again, our alumni, our youth educators, where the difference. We, you know, employed, you know, at least a couple dozen, I imagine. Um, and those were the guys who were just toughing it out every day because we were still asking our intensive folks this summer to get on Zoom and Slack and Google Classroom five hours each day for six or seven weeks out of the summer. Um, and we were grinding. So um, I'm so appreciative to our team. And, and it just all came from the same place. There's a lot to figure out. There's a lot where we don't agree or where we just feel kind of traumatized. But, you know, the thing that we all agree on is these young people need us. So let's get busy. Let's get active and, and wrap our arms around them as soon as we can. We're, we're about to reach the top of the hour. I have a series of rapid fire questions I want to ask you to mm -hmm. close out. Um, but before we do that, I want, I, want, I want to hear a little bit about your family. You mentioned your wife and your son. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, I guess the rapid fire response is I got a wife, Rachel, who doesn't like me that much, but it's fine because my mother <laughs> and dad didn't like me that much either. I think they always say you go for your mom. They love me. They both love me and keep me in line. Uh, and I think they're my biggest supporters, but they just don't like me. But I don't like her that much either. And it's been <laughs> a, we've been together 14 years. And I realized from the jump, the first time she, you know, didn't respond to my calls for two weeks when I was trying to get her to go out just so she could see if I was serious. Um, you know, that's that's too much mind games for me. But, you know, it turned out to be worth it. We've been together ever since. So I appreciate her. I love her. Uh, and then we, three and a half months ago, gave birth to our first child, uh, Nico. Uh, Nico Lee and that's our son and, and really proud to have him and happy and he's you know awesome he's uh, growing extremely fast he's about six months or excuse me six inches in uh, you know within three and a half months which is quite rapid uh, you know he's he's uh, growing out of everything you know so uh, okay, like his daddy huh exactly <laughs> but uh, he's a really cool guy really laid back and and uh, really sharp so I'm having fun with him nice nice all right, rapid fire. Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. Do you meditate? I do every day. What's one book you would recommend? Ooh, uh, that's a tough one. You know, when I just really love it's heavy, but Devil in the Grove, uh, Devil in the Grove, and I'm blanking on the author. Was a, it's a really compelling story about Central Florida uh, in just some really wild times. So, Devil in the Grove. What personal weakness can you forgive in someone? I think the one I can always forgive but I may not always just process it well, I think is, uh, right, a fear of failure. Because I think that so many of us, we want to do well, and, and especially like in the work I do and in, in the communities I'm in, you know, uh, the degree of difficulty is very high. So sometimes that fear of failure starts to creep in. And uh, I, I really have to keep pushing and challenging myself to forgive so that we can push through it and above it and around it and, and get to the goal. Do you have a motto? I, I probably don't have one. I, I like just, I just jump on a lot of folks. One of the first ones that came to mind 
uh, you know, stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Uh, there you but, go. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of great women. You know, uh, uh, you know, I appreciate uh, all our kind of hip hop uh, mantras, uh, but that's uh -huh. an important one. Yeah. Uh -huh. Well, let's do that. Let's do top five. Top five. Top five hip hop artists. That's tough. Pac has meant a lot for sure. I love, I just love listening to Common. I really do. So I'll put Common in there. There's, I'm trying to figure out like which early, which kind of foundational person you got to put in there. There are some great ones, but like just listening, Rock Kim is pretty solid. Like, I think, I think that that's probably like my legacy guy for sure. Um, just for the, just because we're almost the same age. So like, I feel like I grew up with Lil Wayne for sure. Okay. Uh, you know, and then, uh, you know, I think, uh, man, there's so many cats around here uh, from Oakland uh, or the Bay, um, and, and I got to sh show some love. And I feel like, man, I, even like Hyro, even 40 for that matter, but, man, there's so many so many cats. There you go. That was six, but that's dope. I know. I know, I know. <laughs> you did great. <laughs> Last and final question. Who's going to win the presidential election? Well, you know, I guess it depends on who's got the best uh, bots, you know. <laughs> you know what, what time is it in Romania right now? Most of them working. Uh, you know, it, it's probably about time to get, you know, Donald out of there, I think. But, uh, man, yeah, you know, I talked to my grandmother about what it was like to grow up in Central Florida, no less. She's 92 years old, and she was talking about, you know, being born without the vote, as was my mother, right, and my father. Um, and just, you know, there's just been no shortage of shenanigans over the years, mm -hmm. electoral shenanigans. Um, it's been really cool to see uh, LeBron James and folks, you know, working on their their voter uh, empowerment and, and, and voter, voter enfranchisement work in Florida. And uh, I, this past week, right, they were announcing that LeBron and, and all these folks who've signed on, they've been paying the uh, restitution down mm -hmm. for formerly incarcerated folks who have felonies mm -hmm. uh, in the state of Florida so they can have the right to vote come mm -hmm. November. Um, because, you know, at the end of the day, we, we need leadership. I, I grew up, like I said, I went to Princeton at a time. I was talking to somebody the other day. I know it's got to be rapid fire, but... <laughs> it's okay. about, awesome. I mean, I, you got to understand, I majored in policy. One of my heavy disciplines within that was politics. Like, what conservatism meant was like, okay, it was, you know, there's some about, you know, you might look at a Roe v. Wade, but most frequently you're looking at things like immigration reform or education, you know, allocations, and there's systemic injustice tied to that, systemic racism, but there were compromises, there were conversations, there was, okay, give me five of those and I'll give you five of these, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. That's gone out of the window. And, and is, you know, not the, not the least of which is, you know, due to uh, the lack of leadership willing to have those conversations, right? It, you know, I, I literally, my training in the space was not about having everything you want happen all the time. It was about some of the stuff is going to happen, some of it won't. Find the overlap and find the things you can compromise on in order to get some of the things you need, right? We're not having that conversation. So insofar as the person in the top seat uh, is supposed to be helping facilitate a safe space for that to happen, and insofar as he's not, he's the one who's got to go. And, and we hope, you know, obviously Joe can do that or whomever it is, but that that's the part that's just a trip. Like, you know, I, we were getting trained. This wasn't 50 years ago. This was 15 years ago. 
I'm getting trained to think through, analyze, look at information, compromise, confirm, verify. All that is flown out the window. This is Brandon Nicholson. This is Cook on Monday Morning. Thank you, good brother. I appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate you, man. I, I, uh, I think I might start up my own podcast just so we keep our conversation coming. You can be my there first guest. Be on the Tuesday. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> we take it over the week. <laughs> take it away. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I, mean, I appreciate you and, and I appreciate everything you've been doing. Just I just love, man, how you show up uh, with such authenticity. Um, you you know, are obviously super curious, but super knowledgeable as well. And, uh, you know, you, you've you uh, been an inspiration, man. So I appreciate you. Thank you, brother. Peace, peace, and thank you for listening to another episode of Cook on Monday Morning. At Cook on Monday Morning, we are building lives that make us excited about Monday morning. We believe that if we can own Monday morning, we can own the week. If we can own the week, we can own the year. And if we change our year, we can change our lives. I'd like to thank Dr. Brandon Nicholson for sharing his story and the lessons he's learned while building the Hidden Genius Project. He's a good brother, family man, and devoted to his community. We need to come in and celebrate people like him. I hope that you'll support the organization and visit their website, hiddengeniusproject.org. I'd also like to thank you, our listeners, and those that continue to support the Cook on Monday Morning YouTube channel. I'm grateful to all of you for your support. Uh, Please share the podcast with a friend. Help us grow this community of doers. Please also take a minute to Subscribe to the podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, And if you get a chance, please rate and review it on Apple. It's greatly appreciated. If you're interested in starting a podcast, I wrote an article. It's called How to Start a Podcast During a Pandemic. It's very timely. It'll be timely once the pandemic is over, too. Uh, It goes through all the equipment that we use. I offer some book recommendations. Uh, You can read a full article. The full article is in the description box below. Cook on Monday Morning is a product of the Luther Harris Holding Company. We work in partnership to create solutions that drive social impact. We do that by building uh, strategic partnerships between businesses and government. Uh, We offer recruitment services for diversity talent and high impact roles. And we help companies drive impact in the communities where they do business. If you'd like to learn more, feel free to send me an email. I am at info at Again, thank you to our listeners and to the people that make this podcast possible. Our videographer, David Topete. Thank you, sir. Our copy editors, Fernando Encinco Marquez and Devin Sketchinger. Thank you both. I get up every morning with the intention to create value and showcase my love to the people that keep our cities moving. You know who you are. You are our teachers, our school lunch workers, custodians, social workers, firefighters, police officers, EMT workers, garbage collectors, bus drivers, and nurses. You are our employers, the folks creating jobs and keeping our economy moving. And you are our gig workers, stocking our shelves, driving our ride shares, delivering our food to all of you. Thank you. This podcast is for you. You live in places like San Francisco, Oakland, Richmond, Antioch, San Mateo, Los Angeles, Dallas, Houston, New Orleans, Baton Rouge, Miami, Orlando, the Carolinas, Virginia Beach, Milwaukee, Kansas City, Cleveland, Detroit, Harlem, Brooklyn.
shout out to all of our listeners also in Nigeria, Ghana, Jamaica, Kenya, and Ethiopia. Thank you to all of you. This podcast is for you. This message is touching the world and will continue to because of you until we meet again. Peace, peace, and we out.